Exercise in itself is a fasted state. So your body is already doing everything that intermittent fasting touts to do with telomere length changes and autophagy, all of those things happen with exercise. So if you're layering exercise and intermittent fasting, then it's above and beyond the stress that a woman's body should handle. Welcome to the High Performance Health Podcast with your host, Angela Foster. The show where we talk about everything you need to break through limits and achieve a high-performance mind, body, and lifestyle. Hi, friends. Welcome back to another episode of High Performance Health. You are in for a real treat today, especially the ladies listening among us. On today's show, I have Dr. Stacey Sims, who is an applied researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, specifically sex differences in training, nutrition, and environmental conditions. This is a long-awaited episode for many of you. Um, I'm really excited to release it. If you haven't watched Stacey Sims' TED Talk, Why Women Are Not Small Men is absolutely brilliant. But you're going to learn so much on today's show about the sex differences between men and women, why fasting may not be best for women in terms of long fasting protocols, why we need to be careful because of sex differences between women and men, um, how as women we need to exercise, particularly as we move into the perimenopause and menopausal years, why the keto diet may have some benefits for body composition on a short-term basis, but for women for who are looking for health and performance benefits, um, not so much. And we dive into the detail on that. We talk about how taking the contraceptive pill affects your strength. We talk about sleep. What are the best sleep trackers out there? And really how to optimize your nutrition and training for optimal hormonal health. So it's a really fun and interesting, fast-paced episode today. I think you're going to love it. As always, the show notes are over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com, with the transcripts. So don't feel you've got to take notes or try and remember everything we talked about. They're all over there and you can download the complete transcript to have a look at. And that's AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast. So without further ado, let me introduce you now to Stacey. So I'm very excited to be here today by Dr. Stacey Sims, who is an applied researcher, innovator, and entrepreneur in human performance, specifically sex differences in training, nutrition, environmental conditions. She is the author of Raw. She has an absolutely brilliant TEDx talk um, on why women are not small men. And she's a regular speaker at professional and academic conferences. It's so amazing to have you here, Stacey. Welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for um, the time difference accommodation. Early morning <laughs> for you. <laughs> it is early morning. It's getting kind of late, I guess, where you are. But luckily, I'm an early riser. So, um, so this is a very anticipated episode. I have a ton of questions on of my own, having done your menopause for athletes course myself, which is absolutely brilliant, um, and also many, many questions from listeners. But I think probably a good way to kick off really is to talk about why women are not small men and many of the rules and we're going to dive into this today around I guess they're not really rules but a lot of the research for example around fasting around metabolism um, exercise there's so many myths out there but what I see on a regular basis is women um, in my own practice is women in their mid to late 40s and early 50s who just feel so burnt out really by life. They've got very low energy. They feel frustrated. They're exercising more and more. They're trying to cut calories. They're doing fasting protocols. 
And now they're just getting this kind of menopausal spread on top of everything else. And their skin's not looking quite as youthful anymore. And it just feels this perfect storm, really, that's very, very frustrating for many women. And I think you have a lot of the answers, which are not what people are going to expect. Um, so let's just, I think let's kick off with metabolism, right? I know. Um, and I guess, my, yeah, it's, it's, it's counterintuitive, I guess, to what's being put out in mainstream media at the moment. But it seems like from what you're saying is most people are significantly under eating. Yes. Would you that's say that's, biggest- that's fair? Yeah, definitely. From, yeah, I mean, like, we like to say things like intermittent fasting, keto diet, all of those that are so popular, it's more of an elimination diet. And when you look from the big scheme of things, when you're eliminating things, your body is like, hey, what's going on? But if we disseminate it down to what's happening from like women versus men, and you see all these things on Instagram, about intermittent fasting working and exercising, high intensity stuff, all this kind of stuff across the board, and when you're looking at that one shot in time, you're like, okay, I better do this. But when you start looking at the research and understanding the research, most of the research outcomes are based on male populations or sedentary obese women. And when we look at women who are exercising, exercise in itself is a fasted state. So your body is already doing everything that intermittent fasting touts to do with telomere length changes and autophagy, all of those things happen with exercise. So if you're layering exercise and intermittent fasting, then it's above and beyond the stress that a woman's body should handle. And a critical thing that happens is a perturbance in a protein called kispeptin. Now, kispeptin is responsible for turning the endocrine system on and off. So for men, the threshold for the signaling on and off is so much higher than it is for women. So if women drop their calories and have a long period of time where they're not eating, then kispeptin gets perturbed and it's causing endocrine dysfunction. So you have thyroid that gets downturned, which turns your resting metabolic rate down. And you start feeling tired and fatigued. Your um, estrogen, progesterone, they start to be perturbed and you end up having more amenorrhea aspects or irregular cycles. And we're getting into the older woman set when you're in mid forties and you're already starting to have some perturbance in hormones because of perimenopause. And you're not eating, you have increased cortisol from the stress of life, plus increased cortisol from not, from not eating. All these things are perturbing kispeptin, and then your endocrine system takes a big whack. And what a lot of uh, like natural therapists are saying, oh, it's adrenal fatigue. And it's not necessarily adrenal fatigue per se, but it's this whole cascade of things that are happening with your endocrine system that is starting to put your body out of whack where you are getting more tired, your resting metabolic rate is going down. And because estrogen progesterone ratios are changing, you're starting to put on more visceral abdominal fat, so that's that deep belly fat or the menopausal spread. And no matter what kind of exercise you're doing, you're not gonna be able to counter it. It's the food aspect and then the type of exercise that you're doing to work together. And there's so many people that don't think about it that way. Like I'm going to follow this diet and then I'm going to follow this exercise trend, but they're not thinking about it together in concert with how that also affects their daily life. Mm, Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, I think a lot of people are looking at it and going, well, the research on things like longevity looks so good on fasting. Therefore I'm going to throw in fasting. Then I'm going to look at this type of exercise because that looks really good as well. And then, you know, 
friends or, or I've seen people on social media who get really amazing results from the keto diet. So now I'm going to incorporate keto as well. And they start layering all these things on top, I guess, thinking that actually now that's going to give them more and more longevity benefits. Whereas actually, from what you're saying, it's completely overstressing their system. And I think you yeah. mentioned um, in the course actually as well about how at this time, cortisol is naturally rising as a woman's going through perimenopause. Um, she's getting yeah, exactly. greater levels of oxidative stress. Um, and also she's now less insulin sensitive. So her baseline level of all these things is quite tricky. What's the reason for cortisol specifically? Because before we, um, just now we were chatting about how it's also that it's a really difficult time in many women's lives, isn't it? They're raising growing children who've got demands. They're at a point in their careers or profession where it's, it's busy, right? They're almost at that peak, right? They've been doing what they've been doing a while. They've got lots of responsibility. And often then they've got aging parents at the same time to cope with. It's, there's a lot of pressure on women, I think, in that kind of decade. Um, but you're yeah. saying that like biologically, uh, cortisol is also rising on its own. Yes. And one of the responses for having like lowered estrogen progesterone is cortisol is also a steroid hormone. So when your body starts having less estradiol and converting estrone, one of the byproducts of conversion of estrone is getting more cortisol. So by the nature of your estrogen or your, when I'm saying estrogen, I mean your estradiol dropping, which is our primary most powerful sex hormone then you're having this conversion of trying to get more estradiol. So estrone's converted to cortisol. Cortisol is being, being treated as if, okay, well, now we need to find a way to convert this to estradiol, but you can't. And so cortisone or cortisol levels keep coming up and up and up and up and up, and you start getting more estrogen dominance at different times. So the whole hormonal aspect of what's happening is so far removed from whatever a man would experience from stress mm-hmm. levels plus everything your body's going through as you're starting to hit menopause. Yeah, and I guess that's probably partly then why some of the research shows that women in Asia are not necessarily or traditionally experiencing this to the same extent that we are in the Western world where we're pushing ourselves harder than ever before. I mean, it's been amazing for women, hasn't it, the inroads that we've made in terms of professional life. But really now we just end up with two jobs. We're raising kids and we have our career. Right. That's it. And you hear about like the gender pay gap and stuff, and it's not a gender pay gap. It's a parent gap, right? So you think about what happens when um, a couple has kids. If the kid is sick, then the woman has to take time off work and all the responsibility follows on them. Traditionally, I'm sure that that's not par for the course across the board, but it's just this undercurrent of society of all the pressures that women are expected to do because of the traditional role that women have had with motherhood and running a household plus then the empowerment to be out in the workforce. But the silent pressure of having to remember, I'm out of mustard, I'm out of dish soap, I've got to get the kid to the doctor, oh, I've got to do this, I've got to do that, plus all your daily stuff, plus the household chores, plus you know running everything you have to do, it's just so much. And that silent burden isn't talked about and it just increases the pressure and expectations that women are supposed to do now. Yeah, absolutely. It definitely does. And um, I think it's, it's great to kind of give more um, airtime to it. In terms of um, just just like before we kind of leave fasting, obviously fasting in sedentary individuals, for example, is mimicking mem- many of the effects of exercise. So is what you're saying there that because in, in women who are exercising, 
Um, this is just an unnecessary extra stress that they don't need because they're already getting the benefits of things like telomere lengthening, um, better insulin sensitivity from exercise. What about women who are, you know, maybe don't exercise particularly, or they're coming back from an injury, or there's various health reasons why they're not exercising? Would that be different insofar as would they then approach it a bit more like men might? Yeah. But again, we have to be very careful about the length of the fast because you still have threshold sexual sex differences in specific metabolic uh, proteins. So if we're looking even from birth, we have sex differences in muscle mitochondrial proteins. So when you start looking at what's happening in men and women, women already have more capacity for burning fat and for autophagy. So if we're looking at intermittent fasting or fasting, it shouldn't be more than that normal eating that we were talking about before where you don't eat after dinner and then you eat again at breakfast. So you're getting that 12 hour fast, but it's not, it's while you're sleeping when your body does all the preparation stuff. And then when you need food and energy during the day, when you're moving and not exercising, but just going through your day, you're fueling your body appropriately. And then that is primarily how we approach it for someone who's been injured and trying to get back into things or someone who's taking a big leave from exercise and they're like, okay, well, I still need to stay healthy and garner these quantities. If you are looking to really upgrade your performance and help lower cortisol, enhance the health of your gut, and really just improve your overall energy levels, then definitely check out Magnesium Breakthrough by Bi Optimizers. It is my favorite magnesium product. It has seven forms of magnesium to upgrade virtually every function of your body. They also, over at Bi Optimizers, do masszymes, which is brilliant digestive enzyme support. And if you're in the US, they've recently released a blood sugar support product, which will soon be coming to the UK. So when we're looking, talking there about perimenopausal women and the challenges that we have in terms of managing cortisol and digestion and energy levels, these products are going to be game changers for you. And they're ones that I absolutely love to take. And you can get a special 10% off by going to buyoptimizers.com forward slash Angela and just entering code Angela 10 at checkout. That's all lowercase Angela 10 at checkout. So head over to www.bioptimizers.com forward slash Angela to get 10% off anything in their range. And as I say, I think the magnesium is a fantastic product as are many of their probiotics, their digestive enzyme support, and also their blood sugar control. Now let's get back to Dr. Stacey Sims. So even from that kind of 12-hour overnight fast, they're getting enough of the autophagy benefits, for example, without then trying to go longer. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely, it's it's interesting you say that because I've played around with it and obviously I'm busy, I'm active, I exercise most days. And what I found is when I extend it, very occasionally I might do it a little bit longer up to say 16 hours, but I often won't just because I can actually feel that stress within my body. I feel that tension rising. Um, just, I I guess, because of the demands mentally and physically that are upon me. Um, Now on that, and I've had a few questions on this in advance of this interview, when we're looking at women that are coming back, either from an injury or they've burned out or they've, they've been sick, they have this kind of low energy reserve. What's the best way of combating that? Is that through the right sleep and nutritional post protocol, or are there extra things that you would layer on top in terms of supplements, for example, to help them get back on track? 
Um, so it's looking at like, yes, definitely sleep and making sure that you're getting really good quality sleep, not necessarily the length of it, but <clears throat> you're really able to affect HRV. So you're really getting that um, ability to be resilient, right? So if you're lacking sleep, then your HRV is just going to keep going down, 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 which we don't want. Mm -hmm. And when we're thinking about nutrition, it's you don't want to extend that fast. You want to have breakfast. There's a reason why it's called breakfast, right? but being careful what kinds of foods that you're eating, putting an emphasis on protein because protein is a building block of so many things. And in this age group, and I'm speaking as being in this age group, growing up in the Kate Moss skinny era and supermodels, right? And there's been this emphasis of not eating and definitely not protein because you build too much muscle. There's a little bit of fear of too much protein. And if there's any nutrient that you should take in from a dietary standpoint when you're coming back from injury or trying to maintain lean mass and build or and lose body fat it's protein you can be in an energy deficit with high protein diet and you will maintain your lean mass so it doesn't matter what your fitness level is so if we're looking at good sleep good quality protein and then i'm always a big fan of adaptogens just moderating stress helping your body cope with stress through a more natural aspect of using molecules that actually work with your own system instead of introducing a pharmaceutical agent. Yeah, yeah. And I saw, I picked that up. That's something I want to go into with you actually in terms of the adaptogens, because you go into that in quite a bit of detail in the course and how people might use um, different adaptogens in different circumstances. It's interesting as well, because I think a lot of people underestimate, like for example, even taking essential amino acids combined with a little bit of creatine, I find is, is actually a really powerful nootropic. Like when you're looking for mental focus, just having that ready available supply, there's loads yeah. and loads of things that people will layer on top. But that just very simply blended in a drink kind of gives you really, really good focus concentration. Um, That's why it's part of the concussion recovery, mm -hmm. right? Because brain injury, your brain needs it. It's perfect. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so on the sleep and tracking and HRV, are there specific trackers or things that you use? Because I've been comparing, for example, recently, I've worn an aura for quite a few years. I've recently been comparing it with the whoop. Um, the data doesn't match up um, on things like HRV. It, they seem very, very consistent. And I've done that with like the elite HRV app, for example, something like the Polar H10. Um, but what I've noticed is on sleep, they're not, you know, they're not there yet. They're not that accurate, although it is useful for me to look at the quality, look at the metrics and try and get some idea, at least comparing myself against myself in terms of deep sleep. Yep. And I know a lot of my followers and listeners do that as well. Um, HRV wise, um, it's, it's a really tricky one, isn't it? Because once it starts to go low, it becomes quite difficult to try and recover that. And it's very individual. From the research yeah. I've seen, women's HRV tends to be a bit lower than men's often in the first place. Um, have you found that, yeah. that their, their baseline it is? Um, and does that get specifically yeah, affected through the menopause? Yeah, so when we're looking at HRV, um, we, we know that in women, it changes across the menstrual cycle. Um, because we go through periods of sympathetic dominance and parasympathetic dominance, depending on how high estrogen and progesterone are. So in the high hormone phase, when progesterone is elevated, you will have an increased respiratory rate and a decrease in age rate. When we're looking at an absolute quantification of men versus women, then men definitely have a higher HRV than women will when they're most rested. And that has, again, to do with structure. 
the heart and innervation of the heart. There's sex that's bigger than that. Um, and then when we start looking at menopause, women may have more of a sympathetic drive. So we end up with a decrease in our HRV across the board um, because we become less resilient and more in that anxious flight or fight stance. Again, because of the increased cortisol, we also have perturbations when our body's looking for progesterone, estrogen, it's not there, so it's stressful. And these all create a sympathetic drive. So it will last as, as a new biological set point where we have <clears throat> changes in our autonomic nervous system. And this is also why women end up with a greater cardiovascular risk factor when we start getting into menopause, like for cardiovascular disease. Um, less compliance in the vessels plus a greater sympathetic drive. <clears throat> Sorry. Um, and so when we're looking at HRV as recovery metrics, understanding where women are, one in their cycle and two in their lifespan gives a really powerful indication of how they are coping. Whereas men, you don't really start to see a specific time point in their life where it changes. It changes across this the scope of age as an aging factor, but not a definitive point like it is with women with menopause. Mm -hmm. So it's quite different. So it's almost like the baseline is going to be slightly reset by that process of perimenopause. Um, so I know it when is, I was, it, um, is. it yeah. is, yeah. I know I was interviewing Dr. Jay Wiles. He was, um, he was kind of using as a metric that if your if your HRV is dropping from baseline by about twenty percent, this is indicative that you're now not recovering as much as you should. And if it drops by about 40%, then this is active recovery. This is just things like yoga, going for a, a walk. He was kind of using those metrics in, in terms of staying away from that. You know, you might be overreaching and that's fine, but then you just need to recover. But if you take it too far, now you're overtraining. And that's just such a hard, I know from my own experience, such a hard ship to actually turn around, isn't it? It takes so much yeah. work. Um, really tough. And so what are you using, like tracking wise with athletes? What do you use to look at their HRV and their sleep and recovery? Uh, I know I, I personally use Whoop because I find it very interesting and, and looking at different blood flow. Um, so if you're looking at the aura ring, it's measuring blood flow through the finger. If you're looking at Whoop, it's measuring blood flow across um, some of the major um, veins, if they're surface veins and arteries. And the metrics of sleep all come from the blood flow changes. If we're looking at people who are like, so if an athlete comes to me and says, oh, I'm tracking using Aura, sweet. I'm tracking using Whoop, sweet. I'm tracking using the Garmin watch, not good. Cause that's activity, which is just movement. So it's just tracking how much you're moving during the night, but it's not actually tracking sleep. You need that blood flow monitoring in whatever device you're using to get it a more accurate depiction of what's going on from a sleep standpoint. Okay. So either the whoop or the, or the aura pretty good. Um, and then in terms of adaptogens, while we're kind of staying on stress, because I know when you go through these, like some of them, like Shasandra's a little bit more stimulatory, are you sort of using these depending on where that woman is? So whether she's feeling just exhausted and burnt out or whether she's actually now just really getting that sympathetic dominance where she just feels tense all the time and can't sleep. And then is it things like ashwagandha? What have you found um, for people that are listening and they're thinking, actually, I want to try some adaptogens. Often they don't want to jump into hormone replacement therapy. And, they, and, and I think you're right. quite keen for people to get started with something natural first if they can, right, and see how that works for them. Yeah, and primarily because when we're looking at hormone replacement therapy or menopause hormone therapy, it's a, 
a static dose of hormone that goes in every day and then it, it's all stopped. Your body isn't really doing anything except getting the static dose of hormone. But if you're looking at something like adaptogens and you're using something that's going to support your system, so you're going to get through hot flashes, vasomotor symptoms with less of intensity than if you were to try to go on HRT. Because if you go on HRT and then you come off it, you might have a rebound in your symptomology because your body hasn't actually adapted. So if you're not having severe enough symptoms to interfere with quality of life, I always say, let's try diet, exercise, and adaptogens first. And then if it's unbearable, there is a time and a place for hormone therapy. So it's like, let's do small steps first. So if we're looking at what women should start with, it's usually, okay, well, what are your most um, pressing symptoms? Like what's bothering you the most? Is it the brain fog? Is it the poor sleep? Is it the undue fatigue? So if we're looking at across the board, those tend to be the biggest ones that people come to me with. And I have women who get up and they're like, I cannot open my eyes and get motivated and get anywhere without a cup of coffee or two or three cups of coffee. It's like, okay, well, let's have Shachandra. Let's have some Shachandra in the morning to get that focus, that cognition without the caffeine rush. And then other women are like, I'm just stressed and anxious all day. And it's not necessarily a fatigue factor. It's just I'm stressed and anxious all the time. And that's more of an Ashwanda aspect because it works with your HPA axis to be able to work with cortisol and mitigate the stress. So you're not getting this huge, like, I akin to PTSD when you get a big rush of adrenaline and you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so anxious because ashwagandha just kind of levels the playing field. And then for mm. people who are like, I just can't sleep. I'm not so bothered by the fact that I have undue fatigue and brain fog, but I just cannot sleep. I can function okay. I still have stress, anxiety, and vasomotor symptoms, but I just can't sleep. And that's when I'm like, okay, we should try rhodiola and holy basil together to really start calming everything down, get more of a parasympathetic activation to be able to get good quality sleep. Because if we can bring that sleep metric up, then everything else in the day is going to be better. Rhodiola and the holy basil, would you take that in the late afternoon to encourage sleep? Or is that something that someone would take during the day as well to just take the edge off? It it really helps um, bring up your parasympathetic responses. So I try to get it in the afternoon. Like, so people start winding down after work and through the witching hour of dinner and kids and hubbub of late night emails. So they don't get that stress response where they can deal with it and start really getting into that parasympathetic drive for sleep. Um, but having it right before bed isn't that beneficial because it takes too long to kick into the system. So looking at like a three or four in the afternoon so that it kicks in, your body gets that response and then you start winding down the day to get into good sleep. Yeah, get that wind down. Have you found any benefits with things like chaga and reishi as well? I've been, I, uh, I've been recently experimenting with some mushrooms and lion's mane and things like that. And actually it's really interesting because when I've had chaga and um, lion's mane together, I've definitely seen an uptick in my REM sleep, which I think is from the lion's mane from what I'm seeing research. Cool. And then the chaga seems to be, just chills me out a little bit. I feel it um, when I'm taking it. I'm just curious if you've used any of those combinations at all. I have used chaga for traveling, for sleeping on a plane. Okay. okay. And that's, that's about it. Like 
for trying to introduce people to adaptogens, I try to stick with the ones that have a lot of peer review research behind it. Mm. And then when people really start diving into it and understanding it, then we start going to the second level, which is all, almost all the mushrooms. And they're fascinating because mm. each person kind of responds differently. Just to know, like, I'm a hate Ashbury kid. Like, I grew up hate Ashbury, San Francisco. So mushrooms to me has a completely different meaning. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it does. So I'm like, yeah, okay. Well, we'll talk about mushrooms and, and the adaptogens. <laughs> yeah, different type of mushrooms. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, and one thing I found as well is like with people in, if this even happens in like perimenopause, but it certainly happens earlier on. And it happened with me when I was diagnosed with, in the early days with PCOS and endometriosis, it was kind of just like, well, we'll just stick you on the pill. If you don't want to have children, we'll just put you on the pill. That just seems that the kind of medical doctor's way of anything that isn't, you know, when I needed surgery, that was fine. It was all regularly cut out. But in between, it was like, if we just stick you on the pill, it kind of stops the regrowth. Um, There seems to be like quite a lot of growing evidence that, you know, that form of synthetic hormone actually affects women's strength as well, quite significantly affects their brain. What are your thoughts on oral oral contraceptive pill? Uh, So, I mean, it's interesting because like I did my postdoc at Stanford and my mentor was Marcia Stefanik, wonderful woman in charge of the Women's Health Initiative. And she also is Stanford grad where the pill was first developed. So when you look at the history of the pill, it was a great concept of empowering women to have the freedom to go out in the workforce and do what they want to do without the quote bothersome period pains and cramps and everything that, that was associated with the tabooness of having your menstrual cycle. But as things have evolved, it's just become the standard quote to be thrown on an oral contraceptive pill because it's easy. And it's not a true bleed, which people don't know. Like they're not told that your sugar pill week or the bleed you have in an oral contraceptive pill is not indicative of endocrine health. It's not indicative of being healthy. It's indicative of your body not having synthetic hormones to do what they normally do to your body, which is suppress everything. And when people are told, oh, well, you know, go on an oral contraceptive pill if you have bad skin or heavy periods or PCOS, there are other alternatives besides just the OC that you can look at using. And those are sort of in the background because of the way the Western medicine has been pushed so far forward where they get most of their information from pharmaceutical sales reps and physicians don't have time to really dig into literature and see what's changed. And when we look at it for people who just go on the pill because they've been told to go on the pill, maybe they're a teenage girl who's had irregular periods and starts to worry about heavy bleeding or bad skin. And the answer when their mom takes them to the doctor is the doctor's like, oh, we'll put you on the pill okay, well, fine, I'm on the pill now. But it interrupts the endocrine system because it downregulates your natural estrogen progesterone. And it does affect so many other systems of the body. We know that from some research that's just now coming out that it affects HRV. And the pattern of your response is completely different from the natural cycle. So everything you know about the natural cycle doesn't apply to women who are on an OC. We also know that it decreases strength. If you are on a higher dose estrogen, you'll increase lean mass, but it doesn't have the strength improvement that goes with it. So women who are like, oh, I'm putting on lean mass, but I'm not getting stronger, what's going on? And they, oh, it's a side effect of the OC. Um, It decreases your sprint capacity. Um, It 
does have a tendency to put on more body fat and everything's just a little bit more muted. And when we're looking at women who are trying to find their performance potential, understand their bodies and they're on an OC, I'm like, let's just get you off and see how your body responds. And let's look at alternatives. If you don't have to be on it for a particular health reason, but we know like the IUD helps with Meharanja, which is heavy bleeding. We know that it helps with PCOS. Um, and you can even get an implant as well for PCOS. And it's just small doses of progesterone. And that is the primary hormone that's responsible for cell, um, cell growth and proliferation. And so if we're using small doses of that hormone in a localized sense, it helps across the board, but doesn't cause a downregulation of your own system. And yeah, so like from a, a history of the pill, it started off really well, but the education around it has gotten so far gone that there's so many people who are put on it that don't necessarily need to be on it. Mm. I think that's the thing, isn't it? And skin wise as well. I mean, like, like that um, using something like an IUD, that obviously helps with things like the, the heavy bleeding, but some people really struggle with, uh, with breakouts and things like that. Have you found anything that they can utilize that just moderates that? Um, Because it's kind of two things, isn't it, often together, particularly with those sort of endocrine issues where you've got really, really heavy bleeding, but then you've also got these breakouts as well. Yeah. And most of the breakouts are caused from some kind of estrogen dominance. So then we look at using DEM or going to um, a dermatologist and getting a topical. So there's so many great topicals now that you can use that just cut the bacteria and cut the breakout. So it depends on how far down the scope you want to go. If you're like, I'm going all natural, all in, then you can use something like them and the adaptions that really help moderate the estrogen responses your body have. Um, or if you're like, okay, well, I don't want an OC, um, but I'm not against going to a dermatologist, getting help from a dermatologist. Then that's the other step forward that really helps with the breakouts, mitigating it, help with skin health and everything around it without introducing those exogenous hormones. Yeah, yeah, which as you say, have these effects. So moving that, because we, we touched on exercise there, and this is uh, this is really key, particularly for women around perimenopause. Um, they're losing that stimulus from estrogen to kind of create muscle strength. Um, and I know that you in, in, in the course, you talk a lot about this and about how women who maybe have enjoyed running and just going out for a run and kind of being in that gray zone where they're at sort of 70, 80% capacity, which is feels amazing because you feel like you've worked out, you come back, you've got the runner's high, all the endorphin release, but really you are kind of significantly raising cortisol and maybe not getting all the benefits that you could, because I certainly notice when I go through periods like that, the body composition results are nowhere close to when I'm lifting weights. Um, even right. though many women are scared of it. It sounds like from what you were saying and when I did the course is that you want to create this sort of polarity where you're either working quite gently, low and slow. So it's like a recovery run, it's enjoyable or a cycle session or some yoga, or you're actually now going kind of all out doing high intensity work or lifting heavy with low repetition and just not doing this in-between bit that really overstresses the body and doesn't need too many results. Would that be fair? And then we can kind of get into the detail. Definitely. That's exactly it. Yeah, for sure. So when we look at that, then, if we look at a woman's training in terms of how she would break that up across the week, I think you say that actually going beyond four high intensity sessions is probably a bit too much load on the body. Some people kind of don't get past two or three. 
High intensity is also something like as in HIIT training that's really, really misunderstood because lots of people are signing up for these classes in gyms when they're open saying, oh yeah, I do HIIT workouts however many times a week. But HIIT training was actually originally created on a bicycle, wasn't it? Where you're kind of basically doing very, very hard intervals for a short period and then recovering and then a hard interval and recovering. Um, what, what, how would you define HIIT training? So if someone wants to incorporate high intensity to get these benefits. Yeah. So it's no more than 20 minutes. And within that 20 minutes, you're hitting that top, top end. You're looking at that 90%, like balls to the wall, 20 to 30 second interval with lots of really low, low, slow recovery in between. Because the goal is to hit that top, top end to get a very, very strong exercise stimulus so that your body's like, whoa, that's stress. I need to overcome it. So you get better insulin uptake and glucose control, you get a stimulus mass development for um, burning off that visceral fat. And then it's the same idea with lifting heavy. It's not doing the eight to 10 reps type thing where you're just really more aerobic capacity. You want that neuromuscular stimulus because you lose the ability for fast switch and power when you start to lose estrogen. So you're looking at things that are going to almost replace the stimulus that the hormones used to do when you start losing them. And when we're looking at that gray area where I like going to a functional fitness class and we're supposed to be as hard as you can go for 15 minutes and people are taking big pauses and then they're just kind of going half ass at the part where they're supposed to be going hard. It's like, you're too tired to be here. If you're too tired to do that top end stuff, then you need to rethink what you have to do that day. Because you'll see people who go to CrossFit or F45 six days a week. It's like, what are you doing? You're not getting any benefit. You're just going to be in that gray zone where you're going to get more and more tired and put on more body fat. And it's both with men and women, but really prominent in the 40 something age set for women. Mm. And I'm like, two, two, two sessions like that in a week where you go in and you hit it, hit it hard. And you feel it where you're like, I'm going as hard as I can. And I don't need that much recovery between the high intervals because I can recover. I'm rested. Oh, so it could be that you do it on a circuit training class. So it doesn't have to be a cardiovascular thing where it's like all out sprints, 20, 30 seconds, nothing in the tank, recover, and then repeat. Right. You could do it with things like a kind of CrossFit style class or um, kettlebell swings, that kind of, you just need to create that very intense stimulus for a short period. Yes. And what would you yeah. look at recovery times then if you're going kind of all out at that point where it's, you're at max capacity would you recover? I mean, I guess it depends on someone's base level fitness as well in terms of whether they're doing a kind of one-to-one recovery that's going to be very intense or would you look yeah. at something like a one-to-four uh, work-to-rest ratio? Yeah, I, I mean, one of the basic ways to start out is doing a Tabata workout, right? Where you can do a half, a, instead of eight minutes or four minutes, you're doing four minutes or two minutes. Just getting that idea of, of hard, easy, hard, easy. And if we're looking at someone who's just starting out, you might only do two or three of that top, top end intervals where you're having 30 seconds on and 90 seconds off. And you do that three times and then you can't hit that same intensity for that next 30 seconds, then you call it. But people are afraid to do that. They're like, okay, well, maybe I should extend the rest between those intervals, but yet they still can't hit that high end again. And it's when you can't hit that high end, that's when you call it. That's you build your fitness up that way. It's not about time on the feet. It's not about how much time you spend in the gym. It's how strong is that stimulus to create the change that you're looking for. 
That's interesting. That's interesting because, yeah, you're right. You see that a lot where people feel like they've got to do six rounds, for example. And often you'll progress that like the second round is pretty strong. The third is all out. And then it's like it's almost like you can't you can't create that um, drive for sort of the last one. So what you're saying is and actually this is interesting because this makes it very, very efficient for women. Right. We're talking about how women in this age category have so much on. This actually yeah. means that you can kind of exercise within 30 minutes. You're done and you've created that stimulus. Um, yeah, done and dusted. Yeah. yeah, and there's a lot of cardiovascular research too that's looking at the like looking at steady state exercise for cardiovascular health for five by twenty seconds, and and the data showing that people were doing the five by twenty seconds all out with you know, a minute to two minutes recovery between the twenty seconds garner much better cardiovascular fitness benefits than someone who goes through a thirty minute session. So even in, in men and women, it's the same. It's like when you're starting to look at body composition change as well, that's when you really need to hit that high, high end and know when to call call it quits so that you don't get into that kind of sludgy part where you're a little bit too tired, you can't quite hit that intensity. And no matter how much recovery you have between intervals, you're just not going to hit that intensity. Yeah, you're not so, yeah, it's that can to, yeah. And you that slowly would be build up your yeah, so the, you're slowly building up the intervals and presumably the number of times a week you're doing it as well. So you might be starting with one to two yeah. if you're just coming back to exercise as well and then go up to a maximum of four. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then you complement that. Yeah. And then that's why I was saying like you complement it with the heavy lifting to get that neuromuscular stimulus for the power and the fast twitch. And that also helps you hit that high intensity because the stronger you are and the more power that you can produce, the more you can hit that top end. So they're all complementary without causing too much stress on the body. So this is then working in that sort of four to six rep range where you're lifting heavy um, and yeah. you're using a lot of power to kind of lift the bar, for example. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and does that is that then about not doing anything in the hypertrophy range? Because obviously that's people's go-to, isn't it? They're like, oh yeah, I do eight to 10 reps or 12 to 15 kind of. Um, are you saying that they shouldn't be working within that rep range at this? Is that just specifically for this age category um, or just for all women, it works better in the lower rep range? Oh, well, if you're in your twenties and thirties, I guess you get away with it. But to me, I'm like, why are you doing the 10 reps? You're not it's never really made sense. And like from a hypertrophy standpoint, yeah, but is it actual strength that you're developing? But if you're going, you know, the six rep range, you're going to get that hypertrophy and the strength mm. aspect as well. Because when you start getting up into the higher rep range where it just becomes an aerobic burn and it's more developing mitochondria, it's not necessarily causing so much hypertrophy it becomes more of a cardiovascular workout. And I think that's where the appeal comes because so many women are more comfortable in that cardiovascular aspect because it's an understandable type pain because everyone's been there before, not quite understanding what it means to lift heavy and have that muscular fatigue without the cardiovascular anaerobic rush and trying to get people, especially women to understand the difference is part of the education process that has to happen. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting, actually. And also, I guess, as you're saying as well, you are at the very bottom of that hypertrophy range anyway, right, at six reps. So you are kind of yeah. getting some of those benefits. And would you have them do, how would you structure those strength workouts then? Would they be full body that you do a few times a week? Or would you segment that um, in terms of like either upper low or push pull? 
Yeah, it depends on on the woman, how um, much experience she has in the gym, how comfortable she is, what her time pressure is, if she has another sport she's looking for um, to complement. So it's like you do the heavy lifting from a posterior chain aspect if you're a runner or a cyclist or rower, because then you can take that posterior chain fatigue and put it in your primary sport. But if you're someone who's looking for total body involvement for, for health and feeling good and looking good, then yeah, it would probably be a total body, but you don't ever really want one gym session to supersede 45 minutes. Cause then you start getting into, Oh, I'm really tired. And the back half of that workout starts to suffer. Mm, yeah. Yeah. That's true. Which again, just adds to some kind of the efficiency. So that would be working, basically making sure your strength training at least sort of two, two, twice a week, probably three times a week. Would yeah. that be about right? Yeah. 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 And even if it's 20 minutes, and, right? Um, a lot of people are like, oh, I only have 20 minutes. We'll go lift for 20 minutes. That's going to do so yeah. much better than, you know. Yes, yeah, true. <laughs> it's a bit like a four minute Tabata is still better than the workout that you didn't do, right? Um, so. I had to turn the light on so I could see you or you could see me. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I can see it's starting to get dark there. Um, yeah. And what about then the kind of low and slow? Because I know you talk about as well that women are, their mitochondria, the way it behaves, is different. They are already primed for fat burning um, more so than men. So what about this sort of low intensity that's great for kind of fat burning? Like, I mean, I, I encourage people actually to get a lot of these benefits from going for walks just because I think it's so amazing for your mental and physical health. What would you advise yeah. there if they want to, bring in that endurance style work. And that's where you're going embarrassingly slow. So you, this comes back to the polarized <laughs> aspect where you know, you like go super, super hard for your specific workouts. And then for your soul and your mind, it's going like for a 30 minute jog where you're almost embarrassed to see people that people, you know, watching you run because you're going super slow. Right? <laughs> where the person very, next to you is doing fun. a brisk walk and almost alongside you. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, you do get a lot of mitochondrial development, and it you get a good rush of the of, you know the feel good hormones, but it's not a high stress in that gray zone. And a lot, I find a lot of people are like, "But isn't that just junk miles?" It's like, no, it's recovery. If it's low enough intensity, I make people wear heart rate monitors when they're doing the low intensity because I want them to stay at fifty percent. If they go on RP, they always end up too hard. They end up in the too hard to be easy and too easy to be hard zone, which is what we're trying to stay out of. So this would be a heart rate of a, like um, of what? What would you be measuring there in terms of not going over? Uh, looking at what their normal max heart rate is or, or how high they can get in high intensity and then really saying, okay, no more than 50%. On an RP scale of 1 to 10, you're sitting around a 3 so you're like, oh, yeah, gosh, so I feel like I'm doing low. nothing. Yeah. And yeah. then that comes so in yeah, a so lot with, yeah, the deload and the recovery and the technique and all the things that happen at that low intensity, there's a purpose for it. And you don't have mm. to smash yourself. Mm. And I feel like so many people feel like they aren't getting any benefit unless they're smashing themselves. Yeah, I think that's really, really common. And so that, so if you're looking at that as a weekly structure, then people would be splitting these workouts out, right? Because they're stimulating different systems. So what about in terms of the, 
I, you wouldn't be able to bring it, I think, because you're going so high intensity. People Often people will say for speed that what they want to do is chuck the hit on the end of a strength session. But actually, if you're going low rep and heavy, it's going to be really, really hard to then really bring that high intensity session, I think, at the end of it. Um, yeah. And the, the conversation around strength versus hit, if you want to put them in the same session, is you have to think about, well, what is my goal? Am I trying to get stronger or am I trying to change body composition? And if you're trying to change body comp and get stronger, then you want to look at doing the hit first and then some of the strength after. Because you can hmm. still lift heavy after that high, high intensity and you're going to get stronger. But if your goal is body composition, then you do the high intensity stuff first. And then, you know, the strength. But in some of the examples and case studies that I've worked with and have given in the courses, we do the heavy strength stuff first, and then they do a very small amount of hit afterwards. But that's not about body composition change. It's about taking some of the fatigue, putting it into their primary sport, so they know how to go hard when they're tired. Mm. Yeah. Okay. That makes sense. That's interesting. Putting the hit first if it's if it's body composition. The other thing you talk about as well. That we didn't touch on that is the importance of plyometrics um, and actually making sure that people are jumping. And this is partly for the bone density benefits, is it here, which we know are going down in um, women as that estrogen starting to drop off. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that that you can actually just incorporate as part of that high intensity work in some workouts, can't yeah. you, in terms of doing jump box, sure. that kind of stuff. Um, yeah. Yeah. What about for women, though, who've had an injury? I mean, that's that can be really difficult and they don't want to do the plyometric work. Is there other ways that they can yeah. kind of create that stimulus? Yeah. So, I mean, there are there is a time and a place where you just can't do it. Like people will have mm. knee replacement and um, like really severe osteoarthritis. And they just can't do plyometrics. It's just mm. not feasible for their body to take that kind of stress. So they have to look at the high intensity and the lifting to get some of the same stimulus that the players can get them. If you are like trying to learn to jump and trying to do um, like box jumps and get the height, it's like you can start on a trampoline and just get the feeling of the bounding and the rebounding. So then when you get into harder ground, your proprioception isn't off. So you're like, okay, well, my body knows what it means to rebound because I've had that feeling on the trampoline or you're standing in a box and jumping down. So then when you start to go to your box jumps or box jumps or, or um, uh, uh, lunging step-ups where you're lunging and then you're switching feet in a jump kind of thing. Um, all of these are plyometric moves. You have that proprioception to help you. And it's always start low and build your way up and you're still going to get benefit of jumping. And it's not like an hour of plyo type stuff either. It's 10 minutes, 10 minutes of jumping, you know, two to three times a week for that bone density and high intensity stuff. Yeah, I think that's a good thing actually to start off with something like a trampoline or even those those softer boxes. I remember taking a, a wooden CrossFit box and just thinking, I'm just going to really challenge myself, jumped it first phase. That was too easy. So then flipped it over, jumped it the other way. That was fine. And I was like, right, I know I can clear it. And the, and the box is now like up to my hip height. And I was standing there with my husband. He was like, you're crazy. And I was like, no, no, I can do it. It was messy. I cut all my shins, I think, trying to, to oh. just go for it. It was, yeah, it was pretty nasty. But I think they have soft yeah. boxes now, don't they? So 
So they, so before yeah. we finish on exercise, then that's quite a lot of workouts for people. If they were going to basically say they've got, would you encourage them to take a day off or would you use that oh, yeah. like recovery run as a rest day? Um, how would they like as a typical week for someone who's really busy, but they really want the body composition benefits. They want to protect their bones. They want to get rid of the menopause and uh, look good. What would be kind of the weekly structure that they would adopt? Uh, I would start with the heavy lifting. I would just, like, if you're time pressed, do the lifting and you can do some plyo warm up so you get some of the um, the benefits of doing the plyometric moves if it's just a short five minute warm up where it's not too fuel depleting or taxing and then put the emphasis on heavy lifting because the, the lifting part is so important across the board for body comp change, for maintaining muscle integrity, for losing body fat for mitigating the, the cereal fat, for garnering better blood glucose control. So out of, out of everything, I always put the emphasis on lifting. Mm. And for women who are like, well, I'm not that comfortable lifting. It's like, well, okay, well, let's at least have you do one a week. And then we put some high intensity classes and our sessions twice a week. And then we see where you are, how you feel, where, where are we going to put you? So it's always looking at the individual and seeing, well, what are you doing now? Let's take some out because a lot of people put too much in. Let's take it out and slowly phase small things in. And because I come from high performance and sport background, I always look at it as if we're looking at it as a macro cycle of a year, let's phase things in and phase things out. So we can put an emphasis on body composition change or we put an emphasis on strength first and then we start to take down the strength and put in more high intensity and look at it as cyclical, even like with school holidays, when people are time pressed, then we can look at school holidays when they come back after lockdowns are over. Right? <laughs> yeah. Then you can be like, okay, well, school holidays is more about the deload and how do you feel so that you have more time without the pressure of having to put scientific sessions in. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, Cause there's always, that's real life, isn't it? There's always disruptions. And also I find it's more interesting as well when you cycle your training, cause you're kind of like, right, I'm going to do yeah. a 90 day block of this. And then you, you see those benefits and then you're like, right now I'm going to switch it out. I think it makes it more fun. Um, yeah. Interestingly talking about that and the, but the fact that the women should be lifting first, you also talk about the importance now of, because we're talk, looking at body composition here and this abdominal fat, but the importance of fueling those calories. So women often women are under eating that they haven't got enough energy. This is the ideal time, isn't it, for them to be fueling that workout and the recovery. And it's the time when they can load more things. So protein's obviously key. What would you say here in terms of are they going to fuel before, afterwards, or both? Both. Both. Definitely. Okay. Yeah. And don't be afraid of carbohydrate either. It's like, that's the time to put in the protein and the carbohydrate. And if you're fueling for the stress of exercise, then you can change a little bit of your diet far away from exercise because you are in a catabolic state when you finish exercise and you want to stop it. Because if you stay in an elongated time period of in the breakdown state, then you're not going to build anything and you're just going to increase cortisol and put more body fat on. And it's not about, okay, well, I burn X amount of calories in the session. I want to take in a little bit less. It's not about calories in, calories out at all. It's about fueling for the stress, recovering from it. And then you can make wiser choices throughout the day. So this would be, let's say, for example, someone's had breakfast, they're going to go for a mid-morning workout. Um, 
they presumably wouldn't need to have anything specific before. Is it then after that workout, whether it's strength or hit, that they now need to make sure they get protein and carbs on? So something like a shake, right, with um, protein powder and maybe even some like greens powder in it afterwards is going to be a good way after this with coconut yep. water or something like that. Yeah. Or even like a, a single serving of low fat Greek yogurt. Okay. And maybe you put in some maple syrup or some fruit or something in there because that's giving you carbohydrate. It's a massively huge amount of uh, good quality uh, mixed whey and casein protein. So you're getting a slow and a fast release. Um, and you can default to supplementation as well to protein shakes. I mean, everyone's go-to is a protein shake, but there are other options for real food. And if you don't do dairy, then you can look at carb boiled eggs or something like that. So it's not a or massive amount. Yogurt. Yeah. Well, yeah. there's not a lot of protein in the coconut okay. yogurt. That's, That's true. You're looking for the protein. Mm. Yeah. Whereas things like total yogurt are quite high in protein, aren't they? Um, yeah. And it's funny because people will be fearful of putting that sugar in afterwards, but it's really important. We were talking, weren't we, before we got on, and I just I remember getting these incredible body composition effects to the point that my husband was like, "You've got to stop this. <laughs> you're getting yeah. like you're starting to look like a man in terms of not big and not size. I was tiny, right? I was in my 24 inch waist jeans, but I just had abs. I had, and this was on high carbs with protein after after yeah. food. So I think. People fear the fuck carbs. And this this kind of feeds nicely into something I wanted to touch on with you because not only have people been doing these extended fasts and they're becoming really, really popular, but also people have been uh, going for the ketogenic diet. And this is where I see a lot of people come to me because I do quite a bit with genetics and they'll come and they'll be like, I tried the keto diet. It was working really well for my husband. It worked for me for a bit and now it doesn't work at all. And I think yep. this is something people do need to be quite careful with in terms of adopting, particularly if they haven't looked at things like their genetic sensitivities. Um, yeah. But you make a really interesting point in this, that the keto diet is stressful on the body because it's basically yeah. elimination. Can you it kind is. of expand on that? Yeah, I mean, the ketogenic state is a state of, of deprivation, like your body, when it doesn't have the fuel that it needs, it develops ketones and produces ketones, and then your body uses ketones as alternative fuel. And originally, it was developed for male diabetics or obese male patients in the hospital who had to lose um, body weight quickly for surgery and or didn't have blood sugar control. So that's where the ketogenic diet originated. And then you start looking at traumatic brain injury and there's efficacy in there. But when you start looking at the general population, it is an elimination diet. If you're eating high fat and developing um, the ketogenic type blood composition, you're still not necessarily getting everything that you need. And so you are eliminating so many important things and it affects things like gut health which is really mm. significantly important across the board. So if you're having high fat and not a lot of fibery foods, you're killing off your, your important gut microbiome that is so critical for things like BDNF production, hormone production, and having fuel sources for um, vitamin production. So you know, there's a lot of things that are wrapped up in the ketogenic diet that's not talked about in the buzzwords of ketogenic diet. And when we look at women, there is some efficacy for body composition change in postmenopausal women. But when we look at performance and health aspect, there's nothing there to support it. So if you're just after body composition change and you're not exercising, 
Maybe you dabble in ketogenic diet for maybe three months and you get some success and then it stops working. Because that's about the amount of time that your body can handle that stress and then it doesn't work. I get, you know, backlashed on Instagram and and Facebook all the time when I'm out there saying anti-ketogenic diets and anti-low-carb, high-fat because of the overall impact it has on so many of the systems of the body where people are like, it worked for me. I lost so much weight. Like, possibly, but what is the health outcome? Like, are you in a low energy state? What's your gut microbiome? How's your anxiety? What happens if you get a concussion? How fast can you recover from that? And there's so many things wrapped up in it that people don't discuss. Mm. Yeah, that's a very good point. And I think as well, as you say, like when you're skipping out on a lot of those plant foods, the polyphenols and everything that are in them are great for countering oxidative stress, but also they're feeding those healthy gut bacteria. And you can actually yeah. change your microbiome um, pretty quickly. Uh, yeah, I know yeah. that, you know, Tim Spector did it. Obviously, this is not on the keto diet. He did it with McDonald's with his son, where I think he yeah. Uh, yeah. he ate, didn't he, for 10 days. But it took them a year to get it back on track. You know, once you start skipping out on right. these things, it's it's big. Um, yeah. yeah. So, and you make that point, actually, just how important plant based is. But by plant based is what you mean, actually, lots of variety of plants in terms of the color, but with some animal and fish protein alongside it, because it's difficult, yeah. isn't it? If you are a vegetarian or particularly if you're a vegan to actually really get that full amino acid profile. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, we have the vegan name that's been out for a while where it's more of a cultural aspect of no animal products whatsoever. And then you have plant-based and people get them confused. So when I talk about plant-based, most of your food is coming from plant products and then you're accenting it with animal products if you choose to do that. But I'm not about, oh, you have to be vegan, you have to be vegetarian if you're gonna be plant-based. It's like, no, get the bulk of your food from plant-based stuff and then you're adding lean protein to get that full amino acid profile, to get those big hits of leucine that your body needs, especially yes. as an aging woman. Yeah, and I think people underestimate that. Um, so Jesse, can you, can you tell me briefly then, so what would a day in your life look like in terms of eating? Oh gosh, am I training or not? Am I training <laughs> first thing? <sighs> do you train, do you train yeah. before breakfast or after eating? I do, I do, because um, this time of year, we do ocean swims at six in the morning and I'm not going to get up really super early and have breakfast. Yeah. Um, so I'll prepare stuff the night before where I have a, a, a protein kind of banana latte. It's really small where it's a half a banana, um, some protein powder, almond milk and two shots of espresso. And I blend it up and I drink that on the way to the swim. So oh, then I'm nice. getting some, yeah, it's good. Yeah. That yeah. sounds tasty. What was that? Almond Two almond shots milk. of espresso, almond milk, half a banana. And some protein powder. Was it? And some protein powder. Oh, I so lost whatever. you. Oh. Oh, no. I lost you. Did yeah, you say protein? I know, it just went. Almond milk, half a banana, two shots of espresso, and protein, protein powder. 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 Yeah. That sounds yummy. That sounds yummy. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to try and this. So it's easy. So that would be pretty sweet. So easy. And then... Yeah. Mm. And so we swim for about an hour or so, and then I come back and have breakfast. And that's usually um, different types of fruits and some yogurt, and some nuts, and definitely more coffee. <laughs> <laughs> definitely <laughs> more coffee. Yeah. I might 
eight-year-old will be like, run for the hills, mommy's out of coffee. So it's great. <laughs> yeah, I know about coffee. I'm actually about to try. It's funny, I'm about to try this morning. A friend of mine uh, has a company, he's a sleep scientist called Resilient Nutrition. And they're just trialing a new kind of, they've got nootropic nut butters, which fuel, they've done it with a lot of rowers and things. Uh, it, yeah. They taste incredible. Oh my God. And they're mixed with things like ashwagandha. I have to uh, get you some, but it is like, it's addictive. Okay. You can't stop eating the jar. They taste so good. But he's now sent me these um, nootropic blends, which have kind of creatine and caffeine and other things. I'm just looking over there because they're I've got like one a day, diff, two different types to take and just kind of, I'm part of their test group to see how they work. So I'm actually going to go and have one of those afterwards and just see, but I love, I love coffee, see how it affects my cognition and everything. Um, So I was like, with your nootropic nut butters, you could steam it as the milk for your coffee. Oh, steam the nut butter. Yeah. That's the big thing they're doing over here is they're taking like freshly roasted almond butter and putting it in the barista milk and so with the hot water it's melting the nut butter and you can froth it and steam it as your almond milk or your macadamia so it's all from the really runny nut butters instead of of oh that sounds amazing and do you worry about with like nut butters in terms of like the roasting of them and the the fats and whether they get damaged or because i see like different research on this some that sort of says it's fine nuts are good and 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 it doesn't matter if they have been kind of heated a bit what what are your thoughts on that oh i you know i really like roasted nuts so i try not to pay (laughs) you try not to what sorry try not to pay attention yeah Yeah. i do a slow i know i do a slow um a slow heat roast where if i have to preheat the oven for something i'll put the nuts in and then by the time the oven hits the 180 degree c mark i take them out so it's been a really slow roast. So there's never the okay. chance of them getting burned. Yeah. It just gives them a little bit of that nutty flavor. Yeah, it um, does. And, so. and I'm addicted to kind of, I'm pretty addicted to peanut butter um, yeah. as well. And all the nut butters. Um, I'm just seeing now, Chris, before you go, because you've given us so much of your time here. I had so many questions and I think I had so many of my own, but so many from listeners. And I think that I have... Um, I think I've gone through them all. There was one last one, actually, which is some people who have had histamine intolerance after um, after they've taken hormone replacement therapy or also just in and around that perimenopause time. A few people have, have talked about this. What have you experienced in that regard with individuals? Well, estrogen, progesterone um, definitely have an effect on the immune system because if you're thinking about what these hormones do like estrogen surges right before ovulation and then drops a bit and then progesterone comes up and so your immune system changes from fighting virus bacteria to more of a pro-inflammatory pro-cytokine response when you have an elevation in estrogen progesterone so if you're looking at estrogen dominance that happens around perimenopause and you have more of that pro-inflammatory pro-cytokine response of your immune system and histamines fall into that, so you can get a histamine storm. Um, and then when you start taking hormone replacement therapy, it's a higher dose of estrogen progesterone that is a, a static dose that starts to taper off. And again, this can affect your immune system. So I'm not surprised that people are having histamine responses, having a lot of inflammatory responses and cytokine storms when it comes to looking at what's happening in perimenopause and with hormone replacement therapy. 
And so maybe it's a case of like going on a low histamine diet for some time and just using things like adaptogens and just letting the body recover, right? Um, yeah. Taking it a bit easier. Sure. Yeah. There's a, when um, like all the global lockdowns started happening in March, there was a really high incidence of a lot of emails coming to me and some other people about cytokine storms where all these perimenopause and women on HRT were just all of a sudden getting cytokines. Like it, and it's a rarity to have a true cytokine storm where your body just goes into a tizzy, has a complete pro-inflammatory response just off the rails with cytokine and then throws you for a loop where you almost need hospitalization if you can't recover well enough from it. And it was the stress of all the lockdowns and the pressure and everything was just causing immune system to go awry. And it, it was just this one subset of women, it seemed that were in their forties, fifties, and some that were on HRT and some who were right in the middle of all the vasomotor and, and menopause symptoms. So it's, definitely something there that's more yeah. the anecdotal but it would be really cool to have a a proper data set to look across the board on that yeah that's really interesting and um so in terms of like women need to we were talking about going hard going easy i think they need to apply this in their life don't they they need to do more recovery stuff they need to do more kind of meditation more mindfulness yoga even just sitting reading a book going for a walk in the sunshine um just to counterbalance <laughs> swimming in the sea which sounds yeah. amazing um yeah. yeah that sounds perfect what's the temperature at a moment then in the morning when you're sea swimming because it's summer isn't it yeah but summer in New Zealand is just weird like it never like, coming from a large landmass, like I can I'm like okay well I know when it hits June it's going to be nice weather and it'll be nice from June to like October you might have an Indian summer but then you come down to New Zealand and it's still cold and rainy. <laughs> what do you mean? So now we're in July. It's snowing in the South Island. It was a high of 17 here when it's supposed to be 27 or 28 normally. So who knows? The water temperature fluctuates between 17 and 18 degrees. So when I'm sea swimming, I like have lots of layers on and a wetsuit. Mm. But it's just calming because there isn't any other stimulation except your own breathing and seeing the fishes and being in the ocean. Yeah, which is very calming, very nice. So the weather sounds like the UK. And are you an advocate just before you go then in terms of things like when we're looking at stress for women, like cold showering, cold exposure? You know, there's some research that that can help with things like HRV, but obviously it is another stress that's on the body as well. Yeah. Um, what have you found in I, terms of that? I think it's individual with that as well. I mean, like there are some people who can handle the cold and they relish it. And then I'm one of the people that I can't, I can't handle the cold, like Raynaud syndrome. It makes me anxious. I don't get any benefit out of it where if it's a sauna or a hot stress then that's something different. So there are temperature variations that people really should examine. So we get so used to living in the same temperate environment that our body doesn't really understand how to be really cold or really hot. And it's a positive stress. It is uncomfortable, but it's a use stress for the body, not a distress. Yeah. And the fact that it's a strong stimulus and your body adapts in a positive manner to these extremes. So it becomes almost like a, a meditative uncomfortableness when you start getting into cold water immersion or into sauna bathing. But they've both been around forever. It's just now becoming more mainstream because you're getting some science behind it. Mm. Um, so, yeah, it's like 
you won't find me swimming in the middle of winter in the cold ocean because I just can't handle it. But you would find me like in the middle of Hawaii on the hottest day in the lava going, this is awesome. I love it when my head feels like it's going to explode. Which I guess probably comes back to some of that AV dick, right? Are you kind of pitter or what kind of person you are? Um, There's something I love about, I don't know why, I just love the effects of the cold water and a cold shower just going over my head. I think because it stimulates the vagus nerve, doesn't it? Just that that feeling of it on your head and just running down. It just, there's something incredibly calming for me. But yeah, I think it's so individual, isn't it? This was amazing. I, unless you have anything, I think I've probably like, exhausted you it's gone it's even got dark while we're talking it's actually light where I am now but you have given so much and I'm so grateful to you and I know that everybody listening will be too um so unless there's something else please 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 do also just like tell everyone where they can find you I know you're active on social media you have an amazing TED talk which made me laugh as well um (laughs) (laughs) it was brilliant you've also got courses for women in menopause and for uh, pre premenopausal for cycling women, but please just share a link where everyone can kind of come and find you. Well, I'm Dr. Stacy Sims on all the social media and website is drstacysims.com. Um, and the TED Talk is linked in all of those as well. So yeah, you can find me pretty Amazing. easily. Yeah, it's pretty easy to find you. Thanks. Um, so yeah. I will link to all of that in the show notes. Um, thank you so much, Stacy, for coming on. It's been really fun. Thanks for having me. It has been fun. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast episode. I hope you enjoyed it. As always, all of the show notes will be over on my website, AngelaFosterPerformance.com forward slash podcast, where you can also find and download the transcript. If you enjoyed this episode and you know someone else that it may help, please feel free to share it with them or simply take a screenshot of yourself listening to this and tag me on Instagram at Angela S. Foster. This just really helps us to reach a wider audience and keep bringing you the same great content week after week. Thanks so much for listening. I really appreciate all of your support. And if you are enjoying the podcast, I would absolutely love it if you can leave us a positive review on iTunes or Spotify or whichever platform you're listening on. As again, it really helps to get the message out there. And I will see you next week. Thanks for listening. Remember to review and subscribe. You can grab the show notes, the resources and highlights of everything Angela mentioned over at AngelaFosterPerformance.com. You can also snatch up plenty of other goodies, including the highly helpful Angela Recommends page, which is a list of everything she personally recommends to optimize your mind, body and lifestyle.